back again with another episode of Securiosity. But first, we want to tell you about an event that's going on. Join our sister publication, FedScoop, on February 20th, when the most influential federal government and tech industry leaders will come together for the third annual IT Modernization Summit. We will be discussing the latest business cases for modernizing federal systems, the ongoing policy discussions around adopting emerging technologies, and how replacing legacy IT can help prevent the next major breach. Experts from the White House, DHS, GSA will be joined by leaders from Dell EMC, HP, Duo Security, and many more. The event will be held at the Museum in Washington, D.C. on February 20th. For more information and a registration link, check out fedscoop.com slash attend. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for February 8th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel. If you checked on your passport number after the Marriott breach, you might want to do it again, and we'll give you the reason why. In our interview, we speak with Lance Cottrell, a longtime security expert who's a chief scientist for Intrepid. Also, we'll get into how busy DHS has been, particularly chasing one Chinese APT group. But first, let's take you to the news from the unfriendly skies. Eight airlines, including Southwest, use e-ticketing systems that could allow hackers to access sensitive information about travelers by intercepting emails, according to new research published by Wendera. The systems fail to secure info tied to names, boarding passes, passport numbers, and flight numbers. The weakness is a check-in link that is emailed to customers where information is embedded in the links, allowing travelers to travel from their email to a website where they check in for a flight without needing to enter their username and password. Greg, first hotels, now flight companies, with bad security around passport numbers. Yeah, um, this is highly, highly sensitive information. And I think the Marriott breach was almost like a red flag for security researchers in that, hmm, oh, they're storing passport numbers. So let's go check to see where else we might be able to find that. And then here we are uh, looking at uh, some third-party systems that are used by the airlines to send all those emails that we get when we check in to flights. I know there have been a bunch of airlines that have come out since the story has hit the news and have been like, oh, okay, uh, we we fixed this. What was the one airline? Uh, KLM, Air France, mm-hmm. um, also came out and was like, um, you know, okay, we take the security of our customers very seriously, blah, blah, blah. But they're like, oh, you know, we need to fix this and we need to fix this now. So, um, but overall, yeah, passport numbers. Like you need to yeah. be careful just the same way you would with a driver's license number or a social security number or anything like that. I mean, I mean I'm sure it's not the only airline or hotel for that matter that we're going to see this from. Yeah, I would not be surprised if I put the over under. We have about five more stories like this where passport numbers yeah. are leaked. So it, it, it's coming. Just be prepared for it. So the Department of Homeland Security on Wednesday briefed industry on a shift in Chinese hacking strategy that one department official said increases the risk for all of us. The briefing centered on APT-10, a.k.a. Cloudhopper, a group linked to China's civilian intelligence agency that has been accused of breaking into IT service providers to steal corporate data. 
Chinese hackers have gone from individual targeting to using force multiplier effects that let them hit multiple targets in one hacking operation. DHS's Rex Booth said during the briefing that DHS has seen a downturn in APT-10 activity since two of its alleged operatives were indicted in December, but that doesn't mean enterprises should drop their guard. Jen, it seems like APT-10 is actually growing in efforts despite this downward inactivity, despite being outed in this December indictment. I mean, honestly, I think that's probably, um, you know, like receiving a gold star when you're a kid um, to be indicted. So I'm not surprised that it's growing. That's such an interesting way to categorize what's happened here is that it's a downturn in activity. But yet, let me go back to the language here. It says, you know, hit multiple targets in one hacking operation. They've just gotten more efficient. Yes. They, they, yes so totally. you might see a downturn in, in activity, but what they could have been doing in five or six of their single ops, they now have combined into one. So it's more lethal, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah, you've seen the downturn in activity, but they're getting smarter at the way that they operate. So, yeah. yeah, that doesn't mean we should drop our guard. If you Maybe start seeing APT-10 pop up, uh, you should be a little more worried than you were in November, December, yeah. or any time prior to that. APT-10.2. Um, so weeks after the DOJ called out APT-10, analysts at Recorded Future and Rapid7 detected a hacking operation between November 2017 and September 2018 aimed at a bunch of different entities, including a Scandinavian including a Scandinavian software company. The researchers assessed with high confidence that AP-10, a group tied to China's civilian intelligence agency, was responsible for hacking. Only one of these three victims is named Visma, a billion-dollar Norwegian software company that claims 850,000 customers around the world. The hackers likely breached Visma to gain access to other organizations' networks that researchers said, but targeted the law and apparel firms to gather information for commercial advantage. Greg, what does China want with Norway? Uh, I don't have anything off the top of my head, but I mean, when you have these intelligence agencies, intelligence is information, information is knowledge, and knowledge is power. So the more knowledge that they have about what's going on in the world, the better they can leverage what they need to leverage for their own country's gain. I mean, what's the biggest product coming out of Norway? Nokia, maybe? Is Nokia based in Norway? I know Spotify's in Sweden, but uh, Nokia, I think Nokia might be Finland. Um, I'm not really up to date on uh, Scandinavian uh, IT services, but this company called uh, Visma, um, if they have hundreds of thousands of customers, there's obviously some customers in there that China would like to poke around on and figure out what's going on. So um, it's really interesting that they are poking around. But what is also interesting is since this story has gone live, there have been some researchers that have talked about this on social media and have said that it doesn't necessarily look like it's APT-10, that it might be APT-31, which I believe is also Chinese-based. So what are we really talking about here? But it it gets into a behavioral profile and how it's easier to figure out who exactly is hacking you when it's stuck onto the right groups. So uh, TBD on who exactly is behind this, whether it is APT-10 or APT-31, that's a really interesting subplot to this. But overall, it's, yeah, China is now focused on Scandinavia along with everything else. So watch out.
So new evidence suggests that corporate America is actually embracing some of the basic cybersecurity functions that experts have advocated for years. In a survey of more than 5,600 customers, identity management firm Okta found that three cybersecurity services ranked at the top of the list of the fastest growing apps in corporate America. The security training app No Before, the password manager LastPass, and email security service Proofpoint all landed in the top three spots. Security incidents are expensive, obviously, and after all, it's often much more cost-effective to train workers about OPSEC, safeguard their passwords, and protect emails. The average cost of a stolen record is $148, and a typical enterprise shells out about $3.8 million to recover from a data breach. So according to Okta, no before adoption grew by 178%, while LastPass and Proofpoint each grew at least 100%. Jen, the enterprises are learning. I'm not sure I know what Nobefore is. So Nobefore is a security training platform that I think does things like we've heard time and time again about enterprises that are teaching their employees how to look for phishing emails okay. and what not to do with their USB sticks or just, you know, just general basic cybersecurity hygiene. You mean that... I'm not supposed to pick one up outside and put it in my computer? <laughs> yeah, there you go. See, you're learning. <laughs> yes. Everybody's learning. So this is uh, this is obviously trending in the right direction for once that, you know, hammering stuff that don't click on phishing emails use a password manager and watch what you're doing in your email inbox, especially when you're at work. Uh, the message is starting to get home. Yeah, I mean, let's hope, right? So WhatsApp is adding new privacy features that many of its users with owners now able to unlock WhatsApp using Face ID or Touch ID. This layer of security applies to the entire app rather than a chat-by-chat -chat basis and can be enabled through iPhone settings page. By adding biometric authentication, WhatsApp is building on its already respected end-to-end -end encryption protocol. The methodology was developed by Open Whisper Systems, the software organization behind the widely praised messaging app Signal. Even end-to-end -end encryption can't protect users' messages if someone has physical control of their device, a problem that updates should help solve. Greg, smart addition here, right? Yeah, whatever makes your conversation safer, uh, I'm all for, and I think that most people would all before a uh, really interesting addition here in that you can't get into an app unless you have the fingerprint or you use the face ID. Um, Which I think is great. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really smart thing to do. It almost cuts down a little bit. I guess I shouldn't say, I was about to say, it doesn't cut down on shoulder surfing, which is still a big problem. And we talk about it a little bit with physical control of the device. If you see that message, whether it's unlocked with a password, a fingerprint, um, anything else, it's you, you're still liable to have your conversations leak. But giving people more of a way to guard against entry into an app, I don't see how that's anything but a plus. Yeah, for sure. Are you a WhatsApp user? I actually don't use WhatsApp just because I don't know any of my friends or I've never had a source reach out to me through WhatsApp. Uh, I'm on Signal. I mean, I use Signal yeah. all the time. I use Signal daily and I use it for everything from sensitive conversations about stories to talking to peers about like the NBA trade deadline. Like I use it more and more just as a, a common messaging app, sure. which I, I think also helps 
pick up adoption as well, like using more and more of this stuff and just having the security baked in and not really saying, hey, the security part, just using it as, hey, this is a messaging app, just like any other messaging app uh, is a good thing that is a as good well. Thing. So do you use WhatsApp? I don't. For the same reasons that nobody I, else I'm that you know I'm not sure I know anyone it? who uses WhatsApp. Yeah, I know that WhatsApp is a big way for people to talk internationally. I know a lot, the people that I do know that use WhatsApp, it's, 99% of the stories that I have heard use it as a way to communicate with somebody that is in a foreign country. Okay. I know. India, Brazil, Europe, Israel. Um, that's all that I've heard. I was just wondering if we've sort of aged out or haven't aged into WhatsApp yet. Um, or if it was a bigger international market. So yeah, it's like I think it's a bigger it's a bigger international market. I have no idea why it hasn't caught on in America, I guess just because people use their stock messaging apps in on their phone, whether it's iMessage or Android Message or whatever. Sure, like they just yeah. have it on their phone so they don't need to install Easier. a third party. Yeah. But um, yeah. And this is also interesting because of the ecosystem that WhatsApp is in with Facebook. There was recently a story in the New York Times where Facebook was considering moving all of their messaging apps under one integration. So if I were to send you a message on Instagram, you could answer it from Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp. So I think that you're gonna see that integration now pick up if Facebook does go ahead and do that and integrates it all across one platform where you can communicate multi-platform, whether it is Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, Instagram, whatsoever. So it's just this is just an added thing on top of that now where you have more than you're laughing i'm interested no i just it might be the only person that's completely annoyed um to get messages on multiple things like i just i'm at a loss for why we use like facebook messenger um versus text message um or why people send me direct messages on instagram i clearly never go on instagram right i've got like five photos on there um but still people send me messages on there that that i'm friends with right that have my phone number and i'm like just always at a complete loss. That's really interesting that. because I, I will admit that I, I probably have four or five different conversations with the same person across different platforms <laughs> altogether. And I never really thought about it just being annoying. A lot of it is just the, the situations at hand where it's, well, okay, my – like, for instance, I'll talk to my wife over Facebook Messenger because of the integration – there where I have a Mac, but she doesn't have a Mac, so I can't just do the text messaging and pop open iOS well, that's on my thing. Right. So there's a lot of integration there. But security-wise, I think that this is really interesting, and I think that you'll start to see a lot of that cut down if everything is integrated and the security is built in where, well, it doesn't matter if I answer on Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, or Instagram. It all ends up I, in the same place. all ends yeah. up in the same place, and it's safe. Right. So speaking of more safety... Google has introduced Password Checkup, a browser extension that will alert users when they're relying on a compromised username and password combination. The tool compares the user's anonymized credentials with the database of names and passwords stolen in prior data breaches, then warns them that reusing the same information on multiple sites makes them vulnerable. Password Checkup is the latest effort from Google to help users understand when other websites are putting their information at risk. Jen, it seems like this doesn't get much easier. This might be the best thing Google's ever done. I mean, well, other than having a, a search browser, but I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but I mean, this is this is great because I feel like um, all of us have some username and password combination that we are using um, that's been compromised. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. This is an extension. I think this would almost be default 
yeah. by this point. I think it would be a really cool feature just to default in in the browser because I think people should be able to know that regardless. Then again, I think about user habits and they would think of it just as another pop-up and probably ignore it. <laughs> probably. But still at the same time, I think we're getting closer to something where it is default and that information is presented in a way where it's not obtrusive and there is knowledge gain there. It's like, whoa, okay, whoa, I didn't know that. Whoa, okay, Google's actually trying to help protect me here. So good on Google for doing this. Really interested to see it if it ever becomes part of just a stock version of Chrome. I just wish that if um, in, in all apps, anywhere you have usernames and passwords, um, if you have not logged into something in like a year or two, that it immediately just deletes itself. But there you we're go. One way off. We just got, we're full of ideas for you. We are. Too. Come on, Google. So, speaking of Google, there's a spyware campaign against Tibet's government in exile, and it has roots in seven year old Android malware. Researchers from Cisco Talos unpacked a PowerPoint file recently distributed through a Tibetan mailing list. They found some clever spyware and a set of command and control infrastructure dating back years. Unfortunately, that is just part of continuing trend of nation state actors working to spy on civilian populations for political reasons, Talos researchers wrote on Monday. So Greg, could this be anyone but China? I mean, sure, because it's the internet and the internet connects everywhere, but I don't see how it could be anybody but China. This is much more, we were just talking about how they were poking around on a Norwegian software company. Um, that's a little bit outside the box. Uh, China poking around on what's going on in Tibet, I mean, that's a slam dunk case. Yeah. I would not be surprised if this is um, just some offshoot of China's MSS or some other office where it's almost like the B team almost because this is like standard Chinese action. Figure out what's going on in Tibet. Try to benefit from it with whatever regime change or regime oppression they want to So they're not getting with. gold stars. You just called them the B team. Uh, well... You know, you can't all be winners. <laughs> so an update to a story that we recently reported on. After pressure from U.S. senators, D.C.'s Metro system will use the NIST framework to vet hardware and software proposed for an expansive new rail car project. The region could be buying up to 800 new rail cars, and one of the leading candidates in the procurement is reportedly a Chinese government-owned manufacturer. In a letter to senators Wednesday, WMATA CEO Paul J. Whitefield also said the transit system will require third-party testing of its hardware and software. Buying American to assuage security concerns won't be an option because there aren't any U.S. companies that make rail cars. Jen, this is really interesting. So now we find out one of the key points that I talked about is, you know, they were so focused on buying American. Well, you can't buy American because there are no actual rail car <laughs> companies that could adhere to any sort of cybersecurity standards because they don't exist. That's actually really funny. I'm surprised that nobody's staffers um, looked to see if there were any U.S. companies uh, before they wrote that letter. And while this is interesting from the standpoint of they are doing more to integrate cybersecurity compliance and just overall supply chain security, my point still stands. They, it does. This, this could be clean and some operative could walk in to an empty rail car out somewhere in Tyson's or anywhere on or full, the metro system. Or full or, car for that matter. Yeah, right. And and just plan a bug. Yeah. Or or figure out a way into actual systems to mess with the actual rail system itself. Like, uh, uh, yes. It can happen on yes. old rail cars right. too. So. Right. Supply chain security, 
definitely worth checking out. Trying to stop intelligence from being gathered on these trains, I think, goes way, way beyond just adhering to the NIST framework. So yeah. I'm just I'm, well, I'm maybe we're going to see a rail car company um, that manufacturers open up in the United States shortly. Yay. Maybe there's something we don't know. We can only hope. <laughs> so the Department of Defense readily acknowledges that it isn't the greatest at attracting top civilian tech talent, and it's definitely not as good as the private sector is. So the Pentagon wants to hire one of these private companies to do tech recruiting on its behalf. The Defense Digital Service issued a request for information this week looking to create a civilian hiring as a service pilot program. The idea is that DDS would bring in a support service from industry to assist with recruiting technical talent. The selected vendor or vendors would handle hiring people from start to finish, what the RFI calls a white glove candidate experience. Greg, the government is paying for head owners? Sure. I mean, if that's what it's going to take to get cybersecurity talent into the government, I mean, that is what it is. I mean, the DDS is full of some really, really smart people who have a background from the private sector, so they know what it takes to get people into government. And if that means going on a very traditional route of doing some headhunting, so be it. I mean, there's a reason people work in the private sector versus the public sector. Um, I'm not sure this is going to change their talent. Right. Oh, I mean, those headhunters are still facing the very real aspect of having to go, yeah, so here's what your public sector check is, and here's what it would be outside in the private sector. So, uh, sorry, like, uh, that's just the, the facts of the matter. Yeah. So, I mean, you can hire the best white glove recruiters possible. I mean, there's still that looming problem. Yeah, it's all about so, the pay and the but benefits. Look, kudos to the DDS for trying to think of some way to get more people inside of the government when it comes to cybersecurity because we've talked about it a couple times already this year. It's a big, big issue, and it's something that needs focus from anywhere and everywhere. So finally, in our funding corner... There was an announcement today that VArmor, a cloud security company, announced it has raised $44 million in a Series E funding led by Allegis Cyber and Night Dragon. The company helps enterprises manage security policies across disparate public and private cloud environments. VArmor's holistic approach includes auto-discovering hybrid cloud applications, computing infrastructure independent communication policies, and measuring effective enforcement to reduce attack surface and maintain continuance compliance. A very interesting cloud security company getting a very interesting amount of money. Yeah, look, I mean, Allegis Cyber is the gold star VC firm in cybersecurity. Um, I'm sure this company is great. Um, you know, Series E tells me that, you know, it's a it's a big company and they needed to raise money to capture more market share um, and probably is, you know, best in breed in cloud security at this point. Yeah, and that's really something that I want to dive into because a lot of these funding announcements that we've been talking about for a while now, they're all cloud security companies. So how do you really figure out like, who's the cream of the crop here? Is it just by the series funding that they're getting? Is it just by their technology? Like it seems to be just such a crowded field that how do you differentiate one from the other? I mean, I think that's the toughest thing when we talk about any sort of cybersecurity company. There are so many companies doing very similar things, and I think it's really tough um, to be the person buying it, right? Like, go at the RSA floor, um, and you're bound to find 15 companies right next to each other that do exactly the same thing on the surface. Um, 
so I think that's that's a big challenge, and I think that's really what makes a company do better than the others, their ability to say, this is why I'm the leader. But I think in circumstances like this, when it's, you know, so late stages, I assume this company is, you know, this is a probably a proven technology with a lot of customers that can say really great things. Okay. So now to our interview with Lance Cottrell. Lance is actually a pioneer in the privacy space, creating one of the first anonymization tools all the way back in 1995. I feel like that is like the stone age almost for privacy. He was way, way ahead of his time saying, hey, you might want to protect your actual IP address there. Might be reasons that you don't want to give away your location. Um, we talked to Lance about that, about nation state hackers, about OSINT, and actually about wine. Really interesting conversation. Check it out. Okay, joining us now is Lance Cottrell, Chief Scientist at Intrepid. Lance has a really, really interesting background and also recently wrote a very interesting op-ed for CyberScoop on why you shouldn't be afraid of nation-state hackers. But first, uh, Lance, I would love to get into your background because we were talking earlier and you actually have a background in astrophysics. How does an astrophysicist venture down on into cybersecurity? Well, there's no real logic to any of these progressions, (laughs) but I... I was doing astrophysics in the very early 90s, so 91, 92, working with a Hubble Space Telescope before it got the optics repair. And back in that day, the people who were on the internet, who were directly connected to the backbone, were the physicists. I was building web pages on the very earliest forms of the internet, and I became very aware of the privacy and security issues there. I was thinking about cryptography. It turns out that observatories are full of very bored astronomers with a lot of time on their hand who want to try to work out what other people are looking at. So we had to worry about encrypting messages back and forth. And this was really early on. That became fascinating to me. And so I joined a group of other people who were building open source cryptography and privacy tools, partly because of all the concerns about potentially coming regulations over privacy. And after I'd been doing that for a while, I realized that they weren't user-friendly. They were all you know, things for hackers, by hackers. If this was going to be mainstream, I needed to start a company to make it easy to use. And so in 1995, I founded Anonymizer. So tell us more about that. Well, Anonymizer started out just as a consumer internet privacy service. And it would allow anyone to get on the internet and just hide their IP address. That's all there was to it back in the early days. But after 9-11, everything changed because the government really woke up to the need for engaging on the internet and the number of threats that were coming through it. And in fact, we got introduced to them because right after 9-11, we saw there was a terrorist tip site. Go to fbi.gov tips and tell us, you know, have you seen bin Laden in the local supermarket? And we reached out to them and said, look, anyone with a real tip is going to be killed for going to this URL. It's in the clear. It cookies you. It's, you know, at this known thing. We'll set up an encrypted secret backdoor to this, which we can promote, which will protect people going there. And we'll just give it to you. And they said, that sounds good. So by about 913, 914, just a couple of days later, we had this anonymous terrorist tip site that just fed the data through to them. And over the next three months or so, we did, you know, 25, 30,000 tips through the service. And that 
opened all kind of doors for us. Suddenly people are like, oh, wow, there's this anonymity. And when we go out on the internet, maybe it's not a good thing if they can tell that we're in downtown DC when we're trying to visit some group of jihadis that are recruiting. And within the next couple of years, it went from being government as 0.1% of our business to government was probably over 80% of our business and really the total focus of, of where we were going. And when I sold the company, it was to another organization that also really embraced that mission. And that's in, what Intrepid does is our focus is building internet stealth technology for the national security community. So I'm interested to hear prior actually to September 11th because um, you you created Anonymizer in 1995, and I know that there's was a lot of academic use, and that was primarily the use of the internet in the early 90s. So what were your use cases prior to September 11th? You know, really, I think they were more paranoia than realistic <laughs> business case. Okay. I knew that there were these risks. I would talk to people, and it was sort of exactly what you're saying. I go up to someone who's like, you need to worry about privacy on the internet. And they go, wow, what's the internet? Uh, so I was a little too early to market, but also I had no idea what I was doing. I'm an astronomer trying to start a business. And so the fact that there was no competition, it was sort of this green field. I had time to build the technology and learn the business and understand what's going on at the same time that the requirements were growing, that people were starting to track people online and they were doing cookieing and they were uh, you know, starting to be repercussions for being tracked and monitored on the internet. And those two went really well together. Uh, it was kind of perfect timing. I was extremely lucky. How has the technology sort of evolved from then to now? Night and day difference in the technology. In the early days, the internet was very flat. So you go to a website and you passively consume things. And all I need to do is hide your IP address mm -hmm. because you're just reading. Now, everything on the internet is dynamic. It's all about social sharing. I'm posting almost as much as I'm consuming. Everywhere I go, I've got accounts that I'm logging into. And the pages themselves aren't static, they're dynamic. So they're being built actually just for me. So if I go look at a website and you go look at a website, we may well see different websites because the website as such doesn't exist. It's created in the moment based on what the computer algorithms think you'll want to see. And so that's actually part of what we'll do is we'll allow you to have different sort of histories and profiles so you can actually get a holistic view of what's out there rather than just what this particular site wants to narrowcast to you based on who you are, where you are, what you've looked at before, which products you looked at on Amazon. So that's interesting because I wonder from your point of view, how has that changed the way that analysts do their job? Whether it is a data analyst that's working for the national security apparatus, or it's somebody working for a cybersecurity company that's doing incident response or is doing their own forensics. I'm wondering how you've seen the technology evolve compared to the actual job of an analyst and how all of this information now is sort of collected and there is that holistic view. How does all of that come together? Because I, the internet is a lot different than it was in 1995. So with all of the social sharing and all of the cookies and everything that goes into this growing surveillance capitalism almost. I'm wondering how you can be an analyst either on the public or private side and still get that holistic view of what you're looking for. It's changed things radically. So, like I said, it used to be pretty flat. So it was a very passive 
process to consume this information. It was almost like subscribing to newspapers and the newspaper comes in and you read it and everyone's getting the same content and no one really knows what you're looking at. Now, so much of what you want to find is behind logins. It's based on accounts. It may be only shared with friends. And so being able to then get onto these platforms and create accounts and even the whole definition of open source intelligence, which used to mean just what's publicly available on the surface, well, so little is now available publicly on the surface. Even if the user who created the content marked it public, you still have to have an account on Facebook. You still have to have presence. And so it's now forcing the people who are going out there to create accounts, to create uh, identities that allow them to log in, that even give them that surface level access to intentionally public information. And of course, these are unfortunately exactly the same kinds of activities on the surface that you're seeing with the influencers, with the people you know in Russia trying to affect the elections. They're also creating similar accounts. So just being able to maintain an account without getting swept up in one of these dragnets where they're trying to eliminate all the fake accounts complicates things. It's become much more of a cat and mouse game, not just with your opponents, but even with the basic service providers to get access and get information. And I think from a policy point of view, it's requiring some rethinking about what do we mean by open source and what's permissible to go after and what's reasonable for these people to go access because we do have laws and we say we shouldn't be pushing propaganda on Americans and I'm in favor of that. We should not be propagandizing ourselves. But at the same time, we have enemies who are very actively involved in this kind of thing. You have to be able to engage in them where these things are happening. And I think there's some robust debate just starting to happen around reconceptualizing this because the internet has fundamentally changed all the rules and it changes at a time scale that's so short compared to policy, it's, it's causing some real problems. You talked about open source intelligence there, and I'm wondering if you could talk about the value that goes in open source intelligence in your eyes, almost weighed against what's going on on the dark web, because I, I think that people hear the dark web, even people that are not ingrained in the cybersecurity industry hear the term the dark web and think, oh my God, there's so much information out there, what don't I know, and, and what is on there that is hidden away that I feel like it's almost fear-mongering in a way because I feel like there's so much open source intelligence out there that when it comes to a lot of these in investigations the answers are in OSINT and not in the dark web so is the dark web sort of a misnomer when it comes to these investigations and everything is just OSINT or where do you fall there? Yeah and actually I think this idea that OSINT and the dark web are separate is probably the first misunderstanding that fundamentally the dark web is mostly OSINT. Most of the websites on the internet, on the dark web on the internet, are directly accessible with the right tools. They're not locked down. You don't need special permissions to access them. So sort of definitionally, even the dark web is part of the open source intelligence space. But I think more to your point, the public internet really contains the vast majority of the information you're looking for. And in fact, we're starting to see a collapse of the amount of information on the dark web because a lot of the users of the dark web vastly overestimated the amount of security it was providing. And so many of the online black marketplaces that existed, which are of particular interest to, say, law enforcement going after drug dealers and so forth, they're getting shut down one after another. They're massive takedowns. 
uh, and people are losing trust in the dark web, and so they're now moving back to other tools on the clear web. But Such they, as? So they'll be using uh, chat apps more than sort of public uh, trading environments and, and cyber souks. So things like Signal are a big one. People might think about WhatsApp or some of these other public ones, but again, if it's being run through one of these big social media networks, it's not nearly anonymous as people think. And they're also starting to learn that Bitcoin isn't as anonymous as they thought, right? Uh, many people have this conception that oh, everything Bitcoin is secret because my name's not attached to it and I don't have an account with a bank that has a know your customer rule. But the blockchain is part of OSINT. Every transaction ever conducted in Bitcoin or one of these other currencies is public source available to anyone who wants to look. And it's amazing the kind of things you can mine out of it. And we've actually looked at trying to be anonymous with these cyber cryptocurrency uh, transactions. How'd that go? It's hard. It's doable. You can do it. But the amount of effort that goes in is kind of amazing if you actually want to do it right. If your opponent is a well-resourced enemy. If your opponent is some thug on the corner, that's one thing. If your opponent is Russian national intelligence, you'd better be thinking twice about that. I really just kind of want to ask you where I can buy guns now, but I guess I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so. Could tell you, have to kill you. So what tools are investigators and analysts using to identify nation state threat actors and sort of their capabilities? It is this really interesting cat and mouse of people trying to attribute attackers and then to be what we call misattributed. We don't like the word anonymous because you always have some fingerprints that you're leaving. Right? No matter what, there's always some identifier that's going to be sitting out there, even if it just shows that you're being intentionally anonymous. And so our analysts are looking at how are the Russians or the Chinese depositing their malware? Where are they coming from? What, what sort of services do they use? Because they kind of typically want to use services that are friendly and controllable by them. Or more specifically, not friendly and controllable by us. Right. Uh, because then we'd be able to look in and, and see what they're doing. A lot of the attribution comes from looking at the actual malware that they deploy. What's the history of it? Is there linguistic artifacts in the code or the comments or the messages that they send and receive, which will give you some information? Generally, I think the game is going up. People are getting better at being misattributed and hiding and sometimes even false flagging. You'll see people intentionally plant information in the things they're doing that suggests an attribution to someone other than who it really is to try to throw people off the, off the trail. And sometimes we see it's really easy to attribute it. There's all kinds of fingers pointing back at the country that's doing these things. And I sometimes suspect that's intentional. I mean, I can't get inside their heads actually, but it always feels to me like a mafia hitman leaving a calling card. Like, yeah. I did this to you and I want you to know I did it. You can't prove it and you can't necessarily ret retaliate but I'm sending a message. It's like when the Russians assassinated someone with polonium. No one assassinates someone with polonium, right? <laughs> that obviously is intended to be recognized. They deny it, but, but we all know at the same time. And so you see that sometimes in cyber attacks. They're clearly saying, we're going to do this to you, and we want you to know we can do this to you. And other times, they're really trying hard to hide their tracks. And, of course, sometimes you're against the A-team, and they're good at what they're doing. Right. 
and then sometimes you're not, like the Russian hackers who broke into the DNC. This was not their A-team, and they made a ton of pretty obvious mistakes that allowed them to be massively exposed. And in fact, looking through the Mueller indictment of all this, you can even see they, they clearly stumbled on more than they expected, and the A, you know, the B team is sort of starting the process, and as they start realizing they're in over their heads, the quality of all the stuff they were doing went up. So the A team clearly got brought in and got said, in, you, yeah. you, you rookies, move aside, we're going to do this right. But, you know, the cat was out of the bag by then. We definitely knew what was going on. I always feel like they get cash bonuses when they make the news for what they've done. So this A team conversation is leading into something that you actually wrote for us a couple months ago on why you shouldn't be afraid of nation state hackers. So can you elaborate a little bit on what you wrote about? I mean, you got into it a little bit there with not being afraid of the A-team, but talk to me about it from an enterprise perspective. If I'm an enterprise CISO and I might run a company that deals with something in a critical infrastructure segment, why shouldn't I be scared that maybe Russia or China is trying to get into my system? The original title for this article was Embracing the Joy of Being Doomed. <laughs> and my point was the really top hackers, the top people at the NSA, the top people in Russia, the top people in China, they're going to get you. No threat model that you can come up with, no set of mitigations is actually going to stop them from getting through. And something like Stuxnet is a great example of that. Right? Hackers, purportedly unknown, managed to get into the nuclear centrifuges in Iran, protected by two layers of air gaps, right? Literally no network connections between these devices. If that's who you're up against, you're going to lose. And so I think the first step is stop getting obsessed about that, because it's kind of fun for security people to think about these extreme threat models. I want to you know, be able to deal with those uber hackers and, and fun sort of movie plot kinds of attacks, but it distracts resources from the nuts and bolts kind of defense. And frankly, if you don't have the basics down, they don't even need to bring out the A-team or the A-team doesn't even need to bring out their best stuff. They'll just send you a phishing email and take over your network. So my argument is, really focus on that. You're never going to beat the A-team. You're never going to beat the really good guys. But if you can have enough security to make them go get the A-team to beat you, well, that's a lot of resources. Are you worth those resources? Do they want to do that? And from an ecosystem perspective, there aren't many people that are that good. There aren't thousands of these amazing A-team hackers and tools and zero days that they can just pull out at random. So every time you make them use that resource in one place, they can't use it somewhere else. And so it's almost like uh, taking vaccines. It's a herd immunity thing. The more of us who are doing the basics and getting the boring blocking and tackling of security done, the, m the fewer people will get attacked by these folks and it really spreads the resources of these A-teams very thinly. They have to then really think about who do I wanna go after? And so I'm somewhat tongue-in-cheek. You can worry about them, and they, they will own you, but there's not much point to worrying about them. Right, just if it happens, fix it then. So tell us a little bit more about your company that you work for now. So Intrepid is mostly focused on providing these platforms for the government to do any kind of operational activity on the Internet. And we know so many of the bad guys, so many of the threats we run into at the national, even local law enforcement levels are engaging 
in those places. So we've built a SaaS platform for cyber stealth. So that as a subscription, you can come to us and we provide the security because you're going up against scary people. So you want to make sure that you don't get malware on this dark website uh-huh. that you go to, making sure that they can't identify who you are. They can't correlate your different activities and all of that uh, on a subscription basis. So we manage all of that in a turnkey fashion for our customers. And they're really throughout the national security community and throughout the nation. So... I don't want you to give away the secret sauce here, but we're talking a little bit more in depth than just your standard commercial VPN. Absolutely. So hiding the IP address is just scratching the surface. That's table stakes with these kind of activities. There's an enormous number of identifiers that your computer gives away about who you are that allow you to fingerprint the system. You need to keep your accounts separate. There's all sorts of trackers. There's cookies, but there's also super cookies. There's canvas fingerprinting. There's all the different configurations of your computer that if they see the same set of configurations in two places, you immediately put them together. And it's not just nation states that are doing this. Even advertising networks are using this kind of information to compare. Or if you're doing competitive intelligence and you want to go look at your competitor, if they can see you looking at them, they know what you're interested in. Or, as we've seen, they will lie to you. They will set up their website to push misinformation at you because of uh, what they see in in your fingerprint. So that's where a lot of the attention goes, is how do we make sure that you don't accidentally reveal who you are or what your interests are, or accidentally cross the streams? There's a lot of human aspects to this as well, helping people keep their heads in the game. Because the human error is often the biggest problem. Someone accidentally using the wrong account or typing the wrong thing or using the wrong email. And so supporting that kind of capability is critical. And then just training the customers because we spend so much time with our head in this game, we're often brought in to help them understand what is the OPSEC that matters? How do I engage in these ways without accidentally revealing the wrong kind of information? So talking about the advertising networks, Uh, That's really interesting because that has been in the news, especially with regards to how some of these bigger companies are leveraging data that is normally just used just for advertising data. I think about the stories regarding the way that the big telecom companies look to have been selling data to... Uh, bounty hunters or bond um, bond companies or the way that Facebook went out and was using what used to be a VPN app for um, gathering data on their own platform in a certain demographic. Uh, it seems that privacy issues around the use of data are more and more coming to the forefront. So uh, do you think that making these stories more and more visible is going to be a good thing or are we just burning it all down? I think it clearly is having an effect. If we look at Europe with the GDPR regulations, they've really embraced this as an issue and put some very draconian penalties around violating these policies. Uh, There's now finally talk in the U.S. government about some things like that, largely in reaction to many of the states threatening to go rogue with their own regulations. California is getting very serious about some very strict privacy laws. And you can absolutely trace all of that legislation back to these big breaches, these big abuses of, of privacy, abuses of information collection. It just seems like there's something 
irresistible about this data that if you can get data about people and you can get more data about them and get more intimate understanding of them, there's so many things you can do with it. And the urge to then do those things and to monetize that data with other people who want to do it seems to be uh, a variety of crack that just people can't kick. It's just too addictive to them. So we end this on a random question. We were talking earlier about wine, um, that you make some and, and live in wine country. What is the best bottle of wine you've ever drank? I think the best bottle of wine I ever tasted was a bottle of Chateau Lafitte Rothschild 2000. It scored 100 points across all of the rating agencies. And I remember... I was uh, tasting with some friends, and, and this was the, the, the capstone bottle that they were opening, and my wife took a sip and just sort of glazed over. My friend looked at her and goes, do you need a cigarette? <laughs> <laughs> it just, your, your brain melted down. The irony is I actually bought one of these, and they said, hold it for 10 years. And so exactly 10 years later, I opened it, and I don't know if I didn't let it breathe enough or I, it, it was going through what oh, they call no, a dumb phase. Oh, no. It was fine. It was a nice bottle of wine. Didn't live up to the to But the nice wasn't going to cut it, right? Oh, it was this man. amazing thing. Um, but then I can also tell you about the wine that converted me. Okay. okay. Because I think most people who get obsessed with wine, like I am, they can point to a bottle which moved wine from a nice thing to have with dinner or with friends to the subject of long-term uh, obsession and the application of huge amounts of money. <laughs> and in this case, uh, I, I had a Pinot Noir from McCrosty, small winery in Sonoma. We're at a restaurant. We talked to the sommelier. We're just starting to get curious about wine. He says, you should try this bottle. Not a terribly expensive bottle. But it was a revelation. It was complex. It was interesting. It was such an amazing pairing with the food. And that was that point at which we suddenly go, oh, this is not just some beverage. This is this kind of magic elixir that we want to learn more about. Great. Lance, really appreciate you coming aboard and talking about wine, anonymizer, privacy, all things in between. Really appreciate it. We'll check in with you soon. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks again to Lance for joining us. Astrophysicist, wine, all over the place there. That was fun. I mean, I thought the wine was was really interesting. Can't imagine buying like a $1,000 bottle of wine, sitting it aside for a decade, and then opening it up and going, I could have got this down the street. <laughs> that's that's like devastating. 20 bucks, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, was, that would be really disappointing. But I'll have to get that uh, bottle of wine that he talks to that got him into wine to start with. I... I Absolutely want to join list. you on that yeah. as well. All right. That is it for this week, everybody. Stay curious.